Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Are not those who can beat their chest and say, I don't need anybody. That's not strength, that's weakness. Real strength is being able to say, I need some help here. And so we're a community of people who know we need Jesus. We're not a community of people who think we've got it all together and don't need Jesus. We're a group of people who are desperate for him and dependent upon him. And so I want to encourage you to know that if you come here and gather with us, you don't don't have to be alone. I don't want you to feel alone. We're in this together. All right. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We've been walking through the book of Romans, which is Paul's largest theological work. Ultimately, every writer of the Bible. Behind them is the Holy Spirit inspiring the very words. So when we come to these words today in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, we're not coming simply to the apostles' words. We're coming to the very words of God. And when we hear out of this book, we're hearing the God of the universe speak. He has not been silent. He's not left us in the dark to figure out what makes sense to us in this life. He has given us his very words. And this morning, we get the great, great privilege of hearing from God together. The sermon title this morning is The Staggering Consequences of Union with Christ. Three weeks ago's title was The Staggering Consequences of Justification. And this week, we kind of replaced justification with union with Christ. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help, help us all to understand your words. I thank you for all the children that are in here, the young men and women that are in here that are worshiping with us, and I just ask that you would help them to understand what's being said. Help us all to understand your word. Thank you that you spoke to us in plain language, that we can hear what you have to say and respond by your grace. And Holy Spirit, open our eyes afresh and anew this morning. For those that don't know you, I pray that you would, God, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the truth. And I just pray that you would work powerfully this morning. I trust that you're going to. We're here to worship you and to hear from you. God, help us, to, help us to respond in the right way. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Doctrine is another word for, for teaching. And doctrine is incredibly, incredibly practical. Biblical doctrine, teaching from the Bible, theology, the study of God is really practical. It's for everyday people. It's not just for the, the eggheads in, in ivory towers. It's for everybody. It's for all Christians to think through the words of God and to think through... What God has, so, has said in His Word. And our theology or our understanding of God, it comes out, as Doug Wilson says, out of our fingertips. Theology comes out of our fingertips. It comes out of our very lives. What we truly believe reveals itself in how we live our lives. We may say we believe one thing and then go out and regularly live a different way, which is called uh, either inconsistency or hypocrisy. But what that hypocrisy shows is what that person really believes. Now, there are elements of of minor sorts of hypocrisy in all of us where we struggle, where we don't actually believe what we just did, or we don't actually, it doesn't fall in line with what we would call biblical ethics. And we we make a sin, we sin, and we repent, and get help, and we walk away from that. But what we believe comes out in in our lives. Consequences, or ideas have consequences, both good and bad. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 11, it tells us this because what 1 Timothy chapter 1 tells us, it gives us a list of sins. And then after giving us a list of sins, it says that for the ungodly and sinners and for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers and for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And that's what I mean, that, that actions go along with doctrine. And these actions are actions that do not go along with sound doctrine. They go along with false doctrine, bad doctrine, bad teaching, bad belief. If people believe bad belief, bad doctrine, they're going to live badly. Ideas, thoughts have consequences. So that's an example to the negative. Okay, Believing bad doctrine or unsound doctrine leads to... Unwise, sinful living. Ideas have consequences. Today, we're going to look at something to the positive. The, the consequences of good doctrine or what the Bible says. When we embrace and believe what God has to say, it has effect in our lives, how we live our lives. And so three weeks ago, we looked at justification. What does it mean that we have been justified by the Supreme Court of all Supreme Courts? That the God of the universe has thrown down his gavel and has declared us forgiven and righteous. That's what it means to be justified, to be a Christian through re repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ is to have the God of the universe look at us and, and decree about us and declare about us that we are forgiven people, completely forgiven and completely counted righteous. And that is a fundamental teaching of Christianity. It's the only place in the world that says, and the only religion in the world that says that you are justified before you die. All other religions in the world say if you live this way and that way, maybe when you die, you will have earned a place or a seat in heaven. Christianity says you're justified on the front end. And because of that, there are implications. And we were looking at those implications. That means that we are assured of our salvation. In the last three weeks, we've been looking at the assurance of salvation because God has thrown down his gavel and declared us his. Then all these things that we've been talking about the last few weeks are true about us. We're safe. And the same things are true about union with Christ. If we are, like last week, in Christ, chosen in Christ, redeemed in Christ, if we are in Christ and God sees us as being in Christ, then there are consequences, really good consequences. And so that's what we want to look at and consider. If we are justified, we are safe with Christ, we are forgiven. The same is true about union. So if we are un united with Christ, if we are in Christ, what does that mean? What are the results. Now look at chapter 6 in Romans, verse 1 through 4, and we'll read all verses, all those four verses together. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, last week I opened my sermon talking about the objection that's going to come up from the hearers of this letter. If we are justified, if God has said you're forgiven, past, present, future sins... And if we are united in Christ, so whatever is true about Jesus, by God's grace, is counted true about you, then there are going to be some who come and object. 
And they're going to say, well, if that's true, then I am going to sin. I am going to walk my life the way I want to walk and live my life because, after all, as we've been talking about people wrongly doing the last few weeks, after all, I've got my salvation card. I'm united with Christ. Therefore, I can do things the way I want to do things. It's an obvious objection. We can all understand the objection. If all your future sins are already forgiven, if you're justified right now before you're dead, then it's just rational. We all understand it. Do we all not get the objection? Well, then some are going to say, if that's true, all my future sins, doesn't matter what I do tomorrow. Doesn't matter what I do today. I'm going to live my life, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, I'm safe. Okay, let's, let me, let's crowd participation here. Do we, under, get, we get the objection, right? We get what people are saying. Okay? And that's why there's always going to be grace butters. Well, what do I mean, grace butters? Okay? Yeah, 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 grace, but. Yeah, 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 grace, but. We've heard that before. You've probably said that before. Grace is a good idea, and that's a great thing, but you've got to make sure that they stay in line and that they follow Jesus and they obey Jesus. Okay, there's always going to be objectors to the grace of God. And there are always going to be people who misuse the grace of God, like in the book of Jude, the last, second to last book of the Bible, where people are using it as a ticket for sensuality. So they were going out and living their lives and doing things with their bodies that they should not be doing. But if we are united with Christ and all these things that we've been talking about are true, and if our union with Christ started in eternity past and it has consequences into eternity future, our life with God started before the very foundation of the world and it will go way beyond the restoration of this world on and on and on into eternity. If that's true and I'm in Christ and counted as righteous and totally forgiven, and I'm as secure as Christ is, and I just simply love how practical the Bible is, this question comes up. And that's what happened very early on in the Christian, Christian faith. There have been people who confuse God's grace, and they simply abuse the doctrine. They abuse it. They don't understand it in the right way. So it's either dismissed, yeah, grace, but, or it's embraced for all sorts of evil and vile practices. So the thought is, if my future sins are forgiven, then I will magnify God's grace by sinning with all my might. And that's what people are saying. The objection is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because if I just keep sinning and live large and sin in really mighty and wonderful, terrible ways, then God's grace will just show, it'll be shown to be that much big, more big. And after all, His mercy is more. So I'm just going to go out and sin and sin and sin and prove how big God's grace is. Paul says, should we do that? Absolutely not. He, he says it again in chapter 7, or chapter 6, later on in chapter 6. What then? Are we to sin because we are under the law but under grace? Are we to sin? By no means. When Paul has this objection come his way, you can see it kind of just boils up inside of him. An explanation point kind of language. Absolutely not. No, you can't live your life like that. No, we are not to sin all the more that grace may abound. Do you not understand grace? Let's talk about grace. Let's not grace but and then throw in a bunch of law here. The law has its proper pr place. But this is not a weakness in grace here. And we see how practical this is. So some are going to come and they're going to use it as 
this ticket for sinning and saying, I'm going to sin all the more that grace may abound. But then others are going to say, since my future sins are forgiven, since I am in Christ, my sins really aren't that big of a deal. And people are going to come alongside, and this objection is going to come, where people aren't going to take sin that seriously. And so they, they live their life, and conviction of sin comes, and they're like, eh, it's no big deal, my sins are forgiven. And instead of seeing the grace of God as power to overcome sin, people use it as an excuse to stay in sin. And so there's going to be these people that confuse true, gay, true grace, the, the 200 proof stuff, for something else. They're going to exchange it. And so they use it to excuse themselves. And that's the issue being addressed in the book of Jude, as I stated. And so is that um, the consequences of union with the second Adam? Is the grace of God to be used as a ticket for sin or for something else? Well, the objection comes and it's quickly dismissed. Uh, no, by no means. And, and here's where Paul takes us, and this is some pretty, pretty wonderful, wonderful consequences of being united with Christ. By no means, look at verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, why are these objections false, wrong, evil, misguided? Because something definitively has happened to the person who's been united with Christ. There's a death that's happened. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you've been born again, there is a real sense, a real sense that you have died. God has killed you. How can we who died to sin still live in it. The reason why, the, the, where we go with the objection is, hey, you are dead to sin. The reason why we can't continue to live that way is because you have died. God's grace has done something to us. We have actually died. Now, how have we died? If we've been, if we're dead, if we have died to sin, how did God do that? How are we dead to sin? And he goes on to explain. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. Okay. Now, with the Bible, sometimes you have to do some interpretive work. Often the Bible is just plain enough where you don't have to do any interpretation whatsoever. It's just it's really plain. It's there. But often you have to come to the Bible and you have to do some interpretive work and ask some questions. The Bible never contradicts itself. It always interprets itself. It helps us to understand what's being said. The Bible interprets the Bible. But there are at least five views about Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. And I'm not going to run through all of them. But the first thing that people come to when they think about verses 3 and 4 in this chapter is the, is the word baptism. It's like it pops out to us and that's the only thing we see is just baptism. And I'll have to admit, for, for my entire life until this week, it was so fun studying this week because... You know when you're studying the Bible and you're praying, you're reading, and you're studying commentaries and, and you start to see some things and you realize that you've understood something incorrectly for years? And that happened to me this week. I always went to this passage and, and talked about water baptism, being immersed under the water and coming up, the actual act of baptism. And that's where most, pe most people, not all, most people go when they look at verses 3 and 4 because the word just pops out to them. It's just, it's just right there, baptized into Christ. And so we immediately run to baptism. And so I have to admit 
that that's what I've seen as well. But it is true, it is true that most commentators look at that, at that in that way. If you look at this verse through the lenses of baptism, here's what makes the most sense to me. And, and Martin Lloyd-Jones said this as well. A lot of people say that baptism is an, an external sign of an internal work. So it's, it's symbolic, all right? It's just a symbolic thing. But this passage says nothing about symbolic work. It says that baptism actually does something, okay? Then there are those that believe that this verse teaches baptismal regeneration. So there's several denominations. The Catholic Church teaches this, that baptism, the act of going under the water, okay, actually is what unites us to Christ. So all those who are, because it says... We have been united, all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Okay? So there is this tie from actually going under the water, it being a supernatural event, and it actually being the means by which we are united with Christ. And that it seems to be a plain reading of the text that if we're going to say that this is water baptism, we just can't say it's symbolic because there's no symbolic language. It's not saying that, and this symbolizes being united with Christ. It doesn't say that. It just says we were buried with him by baptism into his death. So those who believe baptismal regeneration, they do so because of these verses. So go into the water, you're in Christ. Now you're saved. It doesn't matter if there's been any repentance and faith. It doesn't matter if you're actually born again. If you just go into the water, you are you actually united with him. These, these two verses, that's where these, that teaching comes from. Okay. Now, that seems rather unavoidable from this passage to me, unless it's not at all talking about water baptism at all. And that's the position that I came to. Here, here John MacArthur and Martin Lloyd-Jones on this, and then I'll explain it a little bit. It, it, the word baptize is there, but we know that in the Greek, the word baptize means to immerse. It's, a, it's immersion. It's going under the water. And we've got to understand, I think, that this is teaching something different than water baptism. Here's what John, John MacArthur says. There's no water in this verse, folks. Man, I messed that up. It's a really good line, too. You know, sometimes I do that. This verse is a verse with no water in it, folks. You can hear, if you've ever heard John MacArthur, you can kind of hear his voice come out. This is a dry verse. It's not talking about water baptism. It is using the word baptism metaphorically. It uses it in the way that we often use it. We might say that we went through a very difficult or trying experience and that we had had a baptism by fire. We don't literally mean being burned. We simply mean that we are being immersed in a fiery trial. You know, if you go and, you know, with school often, uh, you get baptized with school on that first week. You just get thrown right in there. It's not usually you got one day, you go into college and, you know, you have that one day where the syllabus gets hand out, handed out. And, and you get that, and then you got one hard day, or one easy day, and then the, the next day, it's either Tuesday or Thursday class, and you just get hammered on that Thursday. Or it's that first week of school, I've heard from, from some of you that your children have brought back a lot of homework already in week one. Okay, you, you're, you're getting baptized by fire. You're getting immersed into the, this work, whatever this work is. He goes on, we don't literally mean we're being burned, we're simply being immersed in a, in a fiery trial or difficulty. We talk about a person coming into an academic environment, and he comes into a very difficult task, and they're trying to work through, generation, through, through generating the intense initial information, getting up to speed on everything, and we're going to go through their baptism. Literally, they're being inundated, immersed. We're not talking about actual experience in water. And neither is Paul here. Romans 6 does not have any water in it. 
He is saying all of us have literally been immersed into Christ Jesus. We have been placed into Christ. That's the idea. Placed into him. United with him. Joined to him. And it's in an in unspeakable glory. This is an incredible reality that a sinner should be joined or immersed in Christ. And Martin Lloyd-Jones also commenting on this after laying out the five views. He says, the conclusion, therefore, which I arrive is that, that this is baptism, that baptism by water is not in the mind of the apostle at all in these two verses. Instead, it is the baptism that is wrought by the Spirit to put a man in Christ through regeneration. This is the position that that I take. I think this is talking about the Spirit's circumcision of the heart, and just like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, baptizing us through being born again, coming alive to Christ, in an immersion, it's an immersion into Christ. If we understand it that way, the verse makes total sense. We have been baptized in Christ, immersed in Him, put in Him, and it also makes sense with the context of chapter 5. Leading from chapter 5 into this verse, we have been put in Christ. We are in Christ. We're no longer in Adam. We have been immersed in his very life, death, and resurrection. To me, it unlocked everything. It was like studying and praying like, oh my gosh, there's, this is great. I love it. And so it's so exciting when you're studying the Bible and things just, just open up. So I think we're talking about the immersion in Christ through being born again. It means that we have literally gone through what Christ has gone, gone through by proxy. We have been united with him. Now, as we look at verse 3 and 4 and talk about why is it that we cannot go on sinning so that grace may abound, it's because we have been immersed in Christ. We have been baptized into his death and to his life. We have been put in with him into the grave and buried by God. Now, let's go through this and look at it again with those lenses on. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, again, immersed into Christ, were immersed into his death, or baptized into his death? Now, you and I came into this world, born into this world as sinners. As we grow up, we kept sinning. We just keep sinning, and it's just, it's just in our nature. We talk about this and, and joke about it a little bit, but everybody who has kids or grandkids, and maybe you forget after you have kids and your kids kind of grow up, and then the grandkids come on the scene and you realize, oh, wait a minute. There was a really funny thing last night that happened. Uh, we were playing outside, and now both of my boys are downstairs. When they come up here, I'm not going to tell stories about them, but uh, Valor is only a year and a half, so I can get by with it now. So we're all sitting out, we're ha having our celebration feast last night, uh, which is what we do now. We have a celebration feast on Saturday nights. So you may get an invite into that sometime soon. But we, uh, we go out our, our front porch uh, area and start playing, and Valor starts walking. If you've seen my little son walk, you know, he kind of just waddles, you know, he just he moves his arm, you know, like this, and... Starts walking out, and Ransom looked at him, and he says, no, you can't come. And Ransom's got his little toy holler that, the, you know, that, that Adam and Amber gave us. And he rides it and drags sticks with it and brings stuff over to the fire pit. It's, it's cool. And uh, so he's doing his work, and Valor was told no by Ransom. He turned around, and Valor, in the yard, laid down, the chiggers and all, all down in the grass, laid down and just buried his head in the grass. I mean, just devastated. Threw a fit. And just was just crushed, absolutely crushed. Children can't um, control their emotions yet. I mean, they can't control them yet. But they also, in their behaviors, they reveal themselves to be not innocent in the sense that uh, we, we don't have to teach them to do bad things. We have to teach them to do good things. When it comes to just good and bad, sin and obedience, what has to be taught to children 
isn't disobedience. None of us teach our children how to misbehave. We have to teach our children how to behave. We have to forge those characters, those character qualities in them that right now, if they remain unforged, that turns into rage and anger. And we all realize this, that if a child hits somebody when they don't get a sucker, if that child is not disciplined and that character is not, that strong-willed character isn't forged, they grow up and they become an adult who punches when they don't get their way. They have that, there's Fowler right there. Apparently he wasn't getting his way down there. So here he is. Hey, buddy. So we come into this world broken because we are sinful. And as we grow, we keep sinning. We keep suppressing the truth, walking in arrogance, arrogantly walking around like we're the king of the world, like we know all the answers to life, like we've got it all together and don't need anybody else. We put on a facade. We bury insecurities. We act as if we're the man, we're the woman, we're strong, I'm powerful. We gather people around us that just give us a pep talk all the time, pat us on the back and tell us how amazing we are. We disobey God and we keep thinking we know better. We reject the gospel because we think we can fix ourselves. The list of sins of commission and omission grow. The things that I did that I knew I was not supposed to do, I just kept doing the list of sins of omission grow. All the things I know I'm supposed to do that I'm, I'm not doing. We had a way of life. And that way of life was wrong. It was sinful. Some people walked before they were a Christian in moralistic pride, priding themselves that I'm the man who would give my shirt off the ba my back, the last shirt I owned to anybody who needed it. We pride ourselves that we're the people who will go out at any moment and help somebody, our neighbor, our friend, whoever. Some sin through moralistic pride, but others sin through hedonistic debauchery. So you look at your life before Christ, and it was fornication, it was fill in the blank, all the list of sins that you could think of that are the obvious, bad, vile, all those younger brother type of sins. But God did something for you. And he did something to you. Why can we not just sin all the more that grace may abound? Why can we not just live this life? If all of our sins are forgiven in Christ, why? Because God killed you. There's a death that happened. We have been united with Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And his choice of us before the foundation of the world has a future application point. When did you repent and believe in the gospel? When did the Holy Spirit come and make you alive. Open your eyes. What season of life, if you can't put a definitive point on it, what season of your life were you changed by the power of the gospel where you saw and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Where you didn't want to live the way you were living anymore? When was that that the Holy Spirit came and baptized you and put you into Christ? God did something. It has an application point in our life. And those who have been united with Christ, who have been born again, have been baptized in His very death. We were immersed with Him in death. In other words, becoming a Christian is moving from spiritual life to spiritual death. I mean, spiritual death to spiritual life. It is, we were dead and been, now we're alive. But it also is a death. You were alive and God killed you, slayed you. You died with Christ. There is a part of you that is dead and will be dead forevermore. 
that's no longer there, that's definitively done away with. That old man, that old way, God took and put in Christ, and you have died with Christ. So we have moved from death to life, but we have also moved from life to death. It is a death blow. God brought his death blow in us being immersed into Christ to the old you. In the very death of Christ, in the very death of Christ, we find our old man, our sinful nature, put to death by God. God himself immersed us and killed us in Christ that we may live. He killed the old man, slayed him, punished him, did away with him, buried him, put him in the ground. The old man is dead and gone. This is what God's grace does. It does not lead to a life of sin because the old man is dead. God killed him, did away with him. And it's an objective fact. The old you, the sinful man, died. What it says. You were buried with him in baptism, baptized into his very death. He killed the old man. And he put that old dead man or woman in the ground. The dead, rotting corpse of who you used to be is in the ground somewhere, buried with Christ himself. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him in, by baptism into his death. By immersion into his death, we were buried. We were buried. We were put in that grave with him. It's so personal. We were immersed into his death, and, and we went into that grave. God punished our sins. He killed the pre-Christian you by the death of his son. You didn't actually have to experience physical death because God slayed you by the physical death of Jesus. Jesus died with your name in his very body. As Jesus bled actual names, his death, the death he died, he died with your name in his very body. God actually punished your sins by punishing Christ. We died and we are buried with him. And God sees your pre-Christ person. And he killed that person. Buried that person. That person doesn't even exist. It's dead and in the grave. We have to answer questions. We get to Romans 7 and Paul still has this battle with the flesh. We still have to consider those things. But there's a definitive action. A consequence to being united with Christ. Being immersed into Christ. And one of those consequences is that you are dead. You died. The old man's gone. And for anybody to walk around, I literally had a conversation with somebody this week, and the person was had 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 left his he he left his family, and this person said, "Well, actually, me and God we're good, we're okay, we're okay," and uh, I said, "You're okay." He told you he tells you the exact opposite. How, what do you mean you're okay? You and God are good. You're in a good place. You're actually violating God's law. You're doing the exact opposite of what he tells you to do. He said, well, thank you, uh, but uh, I have loved I have loved her as Christ loved the church. I said, really? By leaving her? That's the exact opposite. He said, thanks for your concern. Didn't hear anything else. How can you who died to sin still live in it? We can't. That's why we don't abuse grace. It's because their old man is dead and gone. 
we're immersed into Christ. We belong to Jesus. He is the king of our lives. What he says goes. We follow him. We look in his word. And the Holy Spirit has taken what is Jesus's and delivered it to us in this word. And we want to obey. God, we are yours. We want to follow you all the days of our lives. I'm a dead man. We're told that God did this in order that, look at verse 4b, the second half of verse 4 in chapter 6. Just So in order that, we were buried therefore with him by baptism, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. <laughs> okay, resurrection, so neat. Resurrection, Jesus was raised from the dead. And this happened that we too might walk in newness of life. Now, this opens up an understanding of resurrection for us. Okay? Because the resurrection of Christ procured, procure is, is securing something for who it was intended for. So he, he secured something for those who are in Christ. He secured it. He purchased it by his death on a tree. He, he bought it for you. He bought you and he procured something for you. He got it. And one of those things, two of those things, you get one of those things is an actual physical body. And we know when we talk about resurrection, our mind begins to think about a resurrected body like Jesus. So when Jesus returns and makes all things new, we will have a res- resurrected body. So right now we know, especially if you're, you know, you know each, with each passing year, you know, as the joints ache and the back aches and the hip aches and the neck aches and everything else aches and... Everything moves from up here to down here. It's already, I gain weight right here and right here. I don't know why. It's like, so I only gain like five pounds, but it just goes to the worst places, you know. That happens when you get older, you know. You just, you, 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 your body you deteriorates. We know about the resurrection, I hope you do, that when Christ returns, we're actually going to receive a, a fleshly body. It won't be a spiritual body. It'll be a fleshly body. So you'll, his resurrection his body, he came back and they, they touched him. Thomas touched his side and he ate food. We're going to have a physical body that won't experience any pain or anything. We'll know each other. You know, I don't know what Hank, Hank will probably have a little bit more hair, you know. <laughs> but we'll know him. Yeah, long and flowing, he said. First Corinthians 11, probably not. But uh, <laughs> Jordan got that. There you go. That was good. Uh, so, okay, physical body. We'll have a physical body. But also, the resurrection of Christ procured for us something else. Okay? Something for us now. Not just future. Okay, all of God's promises are yes and amen for us. Not all of them are right now. Resurrected body is not for us right now. But there's something the resurrection did that is for us right now. And it applies to the question... Why not go out and sin all the more that grace may abound? First reason is because we were buried with him. We were immersed in his death. So the old man is gone. But the second reason is because Jesus is alive. And that means something. We are united to his resurrection. And it has present application. This life. We don't have to wait for future life to experience what we're looking at right now. We get to experience it right now. And we are experiencing it even if it doesn't feel like it. We have been raised to newness of life. So that text is not talking about the physical resurrection one day. This text is about this very life. We are united 
to his resurrection. It is talking about newness of life after being born again. If Jesus is alive and we are united with Christ, his resurrection procured for us new life today. Resurrection life today. A new way of living. A new existence. The old man gone, the new has come. The old and pass away, the new is presently here right now. That is what God has done for us in Christ. We are united to his resurrection, therefore we get to walk in newness of life today. We are living the resurrection life now. We have experienced life after death. Now N.T. Wright says this. N.T. Wright is a scholar that says some funny things, but he says some some good things as well. And one of the things he says is that if you're a Christian, when Jesus returns, eternity is going to be for you. Not life after death. Because we've already experienced life after death. Because we have been slain. We have died with Christ. We have experienced life after death. Future resurrection for us is life after. Life after death. It's life after Life after death. Because, friends, there is a whole way of living right now. When, when we come, the way, do you realize that this newness of life that we walk in is completely different than the way the world lives? The way the world lives is like this. I'm in charge, and I'm going to do today what I think and what I feel is to be best. And for some people, it looks a little bit more wiser than other people. So some people's decisions about what they think and what they feel, it looks a little bit cleaner than other people's decisions about what they think and what they feel. But it's the same principle. The driving factor behind everybody's life is I'm in charge. And some people living their life wanting to be in charge want to be more generous than somebody else. But it's the same principle. I'm in charge. But for those who have been slain, buried with Christ... We don't live like that anymore. We don't go on sinning that grace may abound. We don't do that because we have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And so the way, the principle of our lives, for every believer, this new way of life, new way of existence, and if you join us, we're all learning this together and continuing to walk in this. What's definitively true is you have resurrection life right now. And what that looks like is continuing to look away from what you think and feel and how I want to live and what I want to do and opening your Bible and hearing from God and obeying Him. God, what do you have for me today? I want to obey you. I want to follow you. So today, I want to go out and I want to remember that the old man is gone and dead. God, help me today live and walk in newness of life. I want to obey you today. Forget what, when my emotions kind of rise up inside of me and, well, I want this or I want to demand my rights or I want to ask everybody else to bend their will around my will. Help me to realize that it's my joy to deny myself and take up the cross and follow me. I'm going to live sacrificially for other people today. Newness of life. And we say phrases all the time that are really good and pithy, and you can put them on whatever you want, Christian things, and say, life isn't about you. Do you realize it's not? This invitation into newness of life is stop making demands on the rest of the world to live as if you are the center of the universe. We get to walk in newness of life. And God is definitively, it's as if God literally, He literally sees the old you, who you used to be before Christ, and it's gone, you're gone, done away with. The old man's dead and in the grave. And if that's true, is there not freedom for us to walk out of these doors and just walk in that resurrection life? The dead, that man is gone. 
You have been brought from death to life, but you've also been brought from life to death. That old man is dead. And friends, that is good news for us this morning. And I have a couple things for us to consider. First for the non-Christian and then to the Christian. And then we're going to sing to the Lord this morning. Non-Christian, you have an invitation this morning to die. The invitation isn't just to, to life. The invitation is to die. Because you have been living the way you want to live, and it's offensive to God. Whether you think it is or not, whether you think you're genuine, your motives are pure or not, if you're not in Christ, you're in rebellion against God. So you can stomp your feet all you want, but you'll give an account to Him in this life or the next. And so the call today is to die, to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And by the grace of God, if God grants real repentance in this room, God will immerse you in Christ. The Holy Spirit will come and do something. You'll be slain. You'll die. And in the same moment of you moving from death, from life to death, or death to life, you'll move from, in the same moment of you moving from being alive right now, the way you're living, to death, you'll be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Something supernatural happens. You'll be made new. The old will be gone. And that's the invitation. Come and die. By the grace of God, admit that you're living in a way that's not honoring God or anybody else. Repent. That's a good Jesus word. Repent. Tell God you're sorry. I'm sorry for living life the way I want to live life. And turn and trust in Christ. By the grace of God, be made new. That's the invitation. And that is an invitation, not just to death. That is an invitation to life. A new way of living. Counter to anything that you see out there in our world today. To the Christian, this is what we need to consider over the next few weeks. This is what is going to be so profound. Later on in this chapter, he says that, So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider yourself. If these things are true, you must consider it as if it's true. I'm dead to sin. You're struggling in sin today? Remind yourself, I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. You may have to repeat it to yourself a thousand times. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. That's not me. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. Because God has definitively done something for you. We do not fixate on indwelling sin. We don't focus on the man that's dead and in the grave. That's not where we go. We don't focus on the man who's buried, who's been suffocated, who is dead in the ground. We focus on the one who overcame the grave. And we turn our attention to him who is alive forevermore, seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. We, sit, we focus on the one and we turn our attention to the one who said, I will be with you now and forevermore. We focus on the one who we're told to looking to Jesus in Hebrews 12, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We turn our attention away from the dead man and on to Christ Jesus, the living man. And by the grace of God, we walk in this newness of life. And it may be slower than we want it to be. But we keep reminding ourselves, I'm dead to sin. I am in Christ. I have been immersed in His very life, death, and resurrection. God has definitively killed the person you used to be. Yes, we battle with the flesh. But God has dealt with that. Definitively and finally. And we must consider it that way. 
And what's absolutely true of us, you may say, well, I don't feel like I'm walking in newness of life. Well, you are. If you're in Christ, you are. And you say, I don't know any of the tangible ways that my life would be different if I wasn't a Christian. And I go through it, and you, you might say that, well, I don't know, maybe if I, if I, maybe my life would be different if, if I wasn't in Christ. I don't know all the tangible ways that Christ has impacted my life. You don't have to. You're walking in newness of life. This isn't an option for a believer, like that, that some that are saved now are walking in newness of life, and some that are believers in Christ aren't. You either are in Christ or you're not. And if you're in Christ, you're walking in newness of life. It's just a fact about you. It's just definitively true. If you say, well, my life doesn't look like newness of life, well, my goodness, it's his mercy that you get to be counted his child, isn't it? I mean, put away with sin. Just be done with it. Fight it. Don't get lackadaisical with it. You're a new person. You're in Christ. You are his. So we don't fixate on indwelling sin. We fixate on the Savior of our souls. These are objective facts. These things can be hard to believe, but they are the truth. There was once a man who looked to the Lord Jesus Christ and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And this morning you may have to say, I believe, help my unbelief. And he will. This is what God did for you. Not only did he bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life, but he took you from life to death. And you're a dead man. And there's no better news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy that's upon us. I thank you for, it's just, you're so kind. For any who do not know you this morning, I pray that you would grant them repentance and they would trust in you. And for all of us who are in Christ, you say, man, I feel like I've been struggling this week. Well, I pray this is encouraging to them. And Holy Spirit, come and just apply these things. Any way you see fit, take my imperfect preaching and imperfect words and perfectly apply them to your bride. Help us as we sing to think about these words, and I pray from the inside out, we would just, we're just the newness of life people get to sing true things, and we just get to sing these things and take joy in them. And so help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want prayer this morning,